as we get started, uh, I want to recognize that today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is, uh, if you know the, the story of Jesus, is the beginning of Passion Week, the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. And what is so um, interesting to me is the switch that happens between Palm Sunday and Friday. Because on, on Palm Sunday, the reason we call it that is that Jesus has this really cool moment whenever he is uh, led in a parade into Jerusalem and everybody's throwing a big party. And they're throwing palm branches on the ground, they're throwing their coats on the ground, and they're, they're crying out, Hosanna. They're, they're, they're excited that the king has finally gotten here. It's as if finally they realize who Jesus is, and they're, they're excited for King Jesus to show up on Sunday. And by Friday, they've hung him on a cross. What a weird week, right? And so during the, the week, the Passion Week, what we see are a, a bunch of the things that you're familiar with in the story of Jesus. He, he comes and he clears out the temple. Um, there, there's a long section in John that we've been reading for months that covers one evening's conversation between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. He has these, this precious moment where he's kind of giving his guys the last bit of kingdom instructions. We see him betrayed in the garden by his friend Judas. And then he's put through some mock trials and some false accusations. And then we get to the day. Like the day in all of human history. The day that Jesus dies for us. And so what I'm going to do today, or what we're going to do today, is a little bit different than normal. We've been in John um, last week. Uh, Winston took us through John 18, and today we're going to go through John 19. And because of the profound importance of this moment, we're going to read every single verse in the chapter. And we're going to do that with four or five different voices. We're going to have different people who come up, and each of us are going to read a part of the chapter, and we're going to just respond how it struck us. And then at the end of the service today, we're going to have a chance to take communion together as a church family, okay? And so I'm going to get us started. We're in uh, John 19, and it starts like this. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace, where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, as I read this, two things stand out to me. And the first one is that it feels like there is just momentum here. Doesn't it feel like this is like a a ball that is already rolling, This is bound to happen. It's like it's inevitable. Pilate can't seem to stop it. I don't know if you noticed, but it seems like Pilate is constantly trying to hit the brakes on this. He can't stop this from happening, and Jesus doesn't try to. This has to happen, and you feel that as you go through this. And listen, if I was there, if I was in the room, I would want to step in and stop this. Are you kidding? Are you guys losing your mind? Like, this is so wrong. It's obvious. Don't do this. And yet it feels like it's inevitable. The second thing is that before this, it seemed like everybody had a calculated angle. Nobody actually wanted to be responsible for Jesus' death. Right, so the, the Jews wanted him to die, but they want Pilate to handle it. And Pilate's not sure he wants to handle it, so he gets a hold of Herod, and then they go back and forth on whose responsibility this is. When it's back in Pilate's lap, then he goes back out to the Jews, and over and over, people are trying to make somebody else responsible for this moment. The evil was couched behind mock trials and false accusations. But in this chapter... It's like the evil is on full display. At this point, the blinders are off, right? And so just imagine with me the evil in this chapter. When it says that Pilate had him flogged, what that means is that Jesus was whipped, but that the whip had pieces of bone and glass tied in the leather so that every time it struck him, it was intended to take flesh back. And they would have whipped him 39 times because 40 was a death sentence. And so 39 times they reach out with that whip and they come back with Jesus' flesh. And then they twist a a crown of thorns. Now, I've got Russian olives at my house. Yard work hurts. I can only imagine what it would feel like to have that shoved down onto your brow. But then in that moment, to have them mock him, put a robe on him, and can you imagine looking the Son of God in the eye and slapping him? The evil, right? And then they parade him out in front of the Jews. This is your king. They're making fun of him. And then the Jews are trying to manipulate Pilate, 
right? You're not a friend of Caesar if you let this guy live. And they finally get to the point that they're just screaming, murder him, kill him, crucify him. The evil. Now, when I picture this moment, I get angry, right? Like, I can't believe how horrible and evil these people were. The evil that was on display, the evil that put Jesus on a cross. And see, the evil that put Jesus on a cross is obscene and disgusting and offensive and embarrassing. But it wasn't just the evil of that day that put Jesus on a cross. It was the evil in my life today and last year and when I was a kid. It was the evil in each of us that actually put Jesus on the cross. He went willingly to the cross and he went there because of our sin, because of our mess. And so this scene of blatant, outright evil that would put Jesus on a cross is a picture of the evil in my life that really put him there. And I see in the selfishness of the high priest, I see selfishness in me. I see my abuses in my life that are a lot like the abuses of the guards with Jesus. It's my failure, it's my sin as much as it was theirs. And so really, I'm actually glad for the momentum. I'm glad that this was inevitable. I'm glad that nobody could step in and stop it because if it had been stopped, my evil would still be my problem. And so my challenge this week is for you guys to spend some time with the weight of the fact that this story is not a story about evil men 2,000 years ago. It's a story about our evil and what God does about it. And so with that in mind, I'm going to bring my friend Bill up to continue in John 19. With the question in mind, why would God go through something like this for evil people like us? Good morning. I'm Bill Hartung. I've been coming to Life Community for a couple years now. I'm always looking for opportunities to volunteer. And I really like the discipleship group that I'm in. The crucifixion. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with their undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. 
Let's decide by lot who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. As a kid, I could not understand why we referred to this as Good Friday. Here is an innocent man who is healing the sick, cleansing the leper, trying to introduce people to the kingdom of God, and the religious leaders of the day have him killed. I could not see what was good about that. As I got a little bit older, people tried to explain to me, well, Christ took on the sin of all mankind, and he took our punishment, and that makes the difference between us being able to go to heaven or going to hell. But that didn't make a lot of sense either. I mean, I hadn't done anything really bad. Why would I need to be punished? After all, how much trouble can a 12-year-old cause? In my early 20s, I accepted Christ. Christ had pursued me long and hard, and I eventually yielded to his call. I was taught, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you confess that with your mouth, and that you're baptized, you will be saved. I started going to adult Sunday school. I got involved in small groups. I kept hearing that prayer time and reading scripture was really important, but the emphasis seemed to always be on being saved, that we needed to witness to other people so they could be saved. We needed to send missionaries to foreign countries so those people could be saved. The constant focus, this hearing that we were supposed to be saved, convinced me that the real gospel that I needed to respond to was, I am saved, I am not going to be punished for my sin, and someday I'm going to go live with God in heaven. To make things worse, about this time in my life, I heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. With this version of the gospel, I was convinced I had already done everything that God required of me. But again, I struggled to spend time reading scripture, and I struggled to have a prayer life with him. Prayer time pretty much revolved around blessing food before I ate it. I knew these things were important, but I just didn't see any payoff in spending time doing this. Usually, it was just to get the check in the box. And my guess is, there are a lot of you that feel this way. My view of the gospel has recently changed. I have spent a lot of time studying the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing book. It has changed 
my view of being a Christian. The Holy Spirit has convicted me that I have been missing a really big part of the gospel message. I am now convinced that the God of heaven and earth, the God who created the entire universe, the God who holds all of this together by the word of his power, wants me to have a relationship with him. Not just a Sunday morning thing, spending time with him. After all, he did some pretty amazing things to make this possible. You've read about a lot of them. The fact that you can read about them is one of those amazing things. He took over 35 men, covering a span of over a 1,000 years. They wrote the story they were inspired to write. And when we put it all together in a book, we get one consistent story about this God we're called to love. If you're my age, you remember watching Charlton Heston part the Red Sea. For the rest of you, I hear the chosen is pretty compelling. God even changed up the whole order of worship. I mean, we no longer have this tribe of priests that minister to us. We don't sacrifice sheep anymore. God tore the curtain that used to separate man from him and invites us to come to him in person. So what could this relationship look like? Well, I have this friend. He and I get together. We drink coffee. Um, It's not always coffee. Sometimes we meet in the afternoon. When we're together, sometimes I talk. I tell him about what's going on in my life. I tell him about my marriage. I tell him about my kids. I tell him about things that I'm struggling with. I tell him about things I think I need help with. And my friend listens to me. Sometimes my friend talks and I listen. He tells me about big plans that he has. And I wait to see if there is a place in his plan where I might fit in and do work. Because I like working with my friend. He often asks me questions. He helps me work through the problems I'm having. And often he tells me, don't worry. The answer to your problem will come. Sometimes neither of us talk. We just sit there together. We watch the morning sun fill up the world. We enjoy each other's company. And I am refreshed. When our time together is over, we go our separate ways. And I think, what a blessing it is to have a friend like mine. And I know I would try to do anything he asked me to do. But mostly, I can hardly wait until we get to be together again. Because I love my friend. This is the type of relationship God has made possible for us to have with him.
We can be together with God and share what's on our heart. We can listen to his plans. And we can just sit quiet and still together. I think every one of us wants to have this relationship. Don't wait until you go to heaven to start living in the presence of God. Start now. He's waiting for you. Thanks, Bill. If you don't know me, my name's Caleb. I'm the youth director around here. So I often get up and preach on a stage. It's just not on Sunday. So thank you for the opportunity to come do it today. Um, I want to go ahead and get started by saying I want to convince you all that the in the verses that I'm going to cover are three of the most important words ever spoken. Whenever I started studying these, I thought it was going to be challenging to come up with enough content because I'm only covering three of the 42 verses that there are. Three verses might not seem like a whole lot of content, but it's a lot once you uh, realize what's below the surface here. So let's go ahead and read the first two. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So, I just told you all that I wanted to convince you of how important some of these verses were. And then I read that Jesus got a drink of sour wine. So you might be asking, what's the significance of that? And there's actually a whole lot of controversy over what it was that he actually drank in that moment. Some people think that it was a mixture of um, sour wine, vinegar, and um, some other things to make it more like a pain reliever, which was a common practice for people who were going to be crucified. Um, they would do that so that they would not be in so much pain. Um, some people think that it was more like a biblical Gatorade, uh, which was also a common practice. They would take uh, wine vinegar and, and mix it with some things to make it more like an electrolyte drink for people who were working hard in the fields. And so they, um, some people think that that's what it was. Others think that it was just one more slap to the face of Jesus to give him sour wine while he's hanging on the cross. Here's the thing, though. I'm not here to convince you of any of those. What I am here to um, try and fill you in on is the real uh, significance of him drinking that. And that is that he was fulfilling prophecy in that moment. It had been prophesied before him in Psalms. And um, this not only was him just fulfilling one prophecy, but it was the 20th prophecy that he had fulfilled in the last 24 hours. As he was being beaten and mocked, he still took the time to fulfill this so that we would know who he was and that we would be able to have confidence in knowing that he was telling you the truth. Continuing on to verse 30. John 19.30 says, When he had received the drink, 
Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus recognized that his life was about to end. He recognized that he had fulfilled the prophecies before him. He recognized that he was about to die. At the beginning, when I started, I said I wanted to convince you that three of the words in here are the most important words ever spoken. And those words are, it is finished. The reality is that the words aren't some magical words, but the significance behind them is what is important. Before we dive into that, though, let's step back for just a second into the beginning of this book. John 1, 29 says this. The next day, John, who was John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's think about this lamb for a minute. Think about what things were like back then. So back then, to atone for people's sins, they had to take this perfect sacrificial lamb or perfect animal from their flock, take it to the temple, and have it sacrificed in their place, have it slaughtered in their place for the sins that they had committed. And in this moment, Jesus was that sacrifice for us. He was the ultimate perfect sacrifice. In this moment, the old covenant was finished and a new covenant began. In this moment, Jesus chose us. Jesus chose me. And I don't know about y'all, but I have done some stupid stuff in my life. And the fact that Jesus looked into the future and saw me, saw everything that I had done against him and still chose to die for me, that just wrecks me sometimes. But it wasn't just me. It was all of you too. He's seen everything that you've all done, and he still loved you so much that he wanted to do that. Even as he was beaten and bruised and mocked, he recognized that in order for us to have full confidence in who he is and to be able to put our full faith in him, we needed the proof of him fulfilling that prophecy. And so he did it, even though he was hanging there bloody and beaten. This moment is a hinge point in our lives. This moment is everything to us. This moment changed the trajectory of the history of the rest of the world. I said it was a hinge point. We've all seen what a hinge is. We all know what they do. They hang doors up and they open and close them. We often overlook them, though. But this hinge point, Jesus being the hinge in our lives, opened the door that allowed us to be in that relationship with him. He opened the door for us to have eternal life with him. Without this moment, a lot of us would not have had the opportunity 
and we would have been eternally separate from him. But because of the fact that Jesus did this, we are no longer seen as sinful, broken people in the eyes of God when we are in relationship with Jesus. We are seen as Jesus was. We are seen as pure and blameless and holy, just like Jesus. So let's thank God for that. And this moment, all of these things that I've said about this moment, that is why I think it is finished is the most important moment in history. Thank you. Heather's up next. Hi, everybody. My name is Heather Motes, and I am a volunteer youth leader. I'm representing our youth with our really cool shirts that you, uh, I think, can buy because my son bought one, and I am borrowing his. Um, I get to continue kind of where we left off, John 19, starting at verse 31. It says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It's hard not to get moved every time we hear the story of the cross. What profound beauty in the words, it is finished. Like Caleb said, the Lord's work in his time on earth here was finished, completed, final. And that truth is described in each gospel. It's explained in the letters to the churches, and it's echoed in every book of the Old Testament. The entire Bible essentially points to the work of Jesus. His beautiful story is even foreshadowed at the very beginning of everything. And there's a connection here that I find so interesting. So we know that Jesus died, and then he was later buried in a tomb in a garden on the day of preparation, the day before the special Passover Sabbath. This was the sixth day of the week because the Sabbath was on the seventh day ending the week. In Jewish culture, the Sabbath is celebrated on Saturday, and it represents the day of rest that the Lord took after creating everything that was and is created. In Genesis 1, we remember that through his breath, through his words, God created space, mass, and time in the atmosphere in the first two days. In days 3 through 5, he created land, seas, vegetation, everything that lives in the water and everything that lives in the air and the sun and the moon and the stars. And on the sixth day, God created animals and he spoke mankind into existence. God made man in his image, through his words, through his work, and placed him in abundant garden on the sixth day. And in Genesis 2, verse 2, we read, 
By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Jesus, the Son of Man, finished his redemptive work on the cross on the sixth day. His work was completed and he was buried in a garden on the sixth day. Does that sound familiar? The parallel to the creation story is what stands out here to me. And this story, Jesus is essential to, just like he's essential to the redemption story. (laughs) This was even talked about in the very beginning of this gospel that we're reading from. John starts out by writing, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1 through 5. So Jesus is the word, and through him all things were made. In the very beginning, in the creation story, through him all things were made. And through him all things are being made new. Through his work on the cross, he gives us new life. Through every aspect of his life and his breath and his words and his death, Jesus offers us eternal life with him. He took on our sins. He bore our condemnations, our guilty verdict and sentence, and he conquered death to reconcile us to life. That means that we are no longer condemned. In Romans 8, 1, we read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took what we deserved and he set us free. God's work in creation and his work on the cross gave us life and frees us. And we celebrate this in church, but I wonder, do we really believe it? As I reflect on my own life, have I thought and acted like I believed I was no longer condemned? Unfortunately, there have been countless times in my life where I've sinned, I've felt shame, and then I hid because I was afraid of condemnation. I was so afraid that God would condemn me that I quickly tried to fix myself, tried to do better, tried to be better, and I failed. And then it was just followed by more striving, more sinning, more shame, and more isolation. And that's a common cycle we see in addiction, right? Somebody messes up, they feel shame, and then they isolate while they try to fix themselves and they fail again. And the cycle just repeats over again. People do things that are completely out of character, some evil things in shame and isolation. So instead of believing that Christ's work on the cross was finished, my actions and thoughts showed that I was still striving to earn my salvation. I was still attempting to earn his love. I was trying to follow the law, trying to make myself good, trying to do the work that had already been done, and it always led to failure, disappointment, and shame. Without realizing it, I was trying to escape the very condemnation that I had been freed from. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. 
And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8.3. God did what I couldn't do. So what should we do then? Because Christ freed us from condemnation, does that mean that we should just do whatever we want and we should just sin so grace abounds? No. If that's the case, then we're missing the entire point. Because Christ died for us, because he loves us that much, and because nothing can separate us from his love, we should not be convicted by the sin in our lives out of fear. Our desire to be righteous should not be because we're so afraid that God is going to spite or condemn us. You should be convicted by the sin in your life because Jesus, God, loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. He would rather die than be separated from you. What can you do to separate yourself from his love? If Jesus was willing to take on the condemnation of all mankind, if he was willing to do that kind of excruciating work on the cross, what do you think you're going to do to break his love for you? Therefore, you should be condemned by the sin in your life, but not out of fear of condemnation, like God is out to get you. You should be convicted by the stunning mercy and love of the one who says, I've got you. I've already done it for you. So instead of trying to do the work that has already been done, I am learning what it means to surrender my life to the Holy Spirit, who I walk with out of joy, not fear of condemnation. I'm learning what it means to abide in Christ. And I find that as I live in the truth that the work is finished and that I am no longer condemned, I find rest. Abiding in Christ feels like peace regardless of the circumstance, like true rest, maybe even resembling the Lord's rest on the seventh day after his work was finished. So my encouragement to you is to ask yourself, do you believe that the work is done? Do you believe that you're no longer condemned? Next time you find yourself in pain or trouble or shame, ask yourself, if you believed the work was finished, would your words, thoughts, and actions be different? How would your life be different if you lived out of gratitude instead of fear of condemnation? So my encouragement is let's live like we believe the gospel. Because it's really good news. And with that, I'm going to invite Tim up to finish us up. Thank you, Heather. And thank you, other speakers. You guys did a great job. I'm going to invite Winston up and Jared. And we're going to close here. Uh, with a song and then a moment, we're going to move into a moment of communion. And we're going to do it a little bit differently, and I'll tell you about that in, in, in just a minute. But I also really want to, what a clear presentation of the gospel, of the invitation to relationship with our Father, to our God. And so I want to invite you as, uh, as we sing this song to sing it prayerfully, sing it um, thoughtfully. And think about what we're singing. And then we'll come back up. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And we're going to take communion together in a little different way.
I think the words of that are so fitting. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. What that means is whether you embraced the finished work of Jesus years ago, but there's something in your life you feel like has been in between you and God and and affecting your relationship, you can bring that to him. His arms are open wide. Take that to him as we close here. And for some of you, what that means for you is embracing the work of Jesus for the first time, saying yes to him coming into relationship. In just a minute, we're going to move into communion. This could be the moment where you take communion as a child of God. I want to invite you to that. If that's you in the room, why don't don't you just pray something like this after me? Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying for me. I believe you're the son of God, that you did die and rise again. Please forgive me. Give me your life. Life eternal and life in abundance right now. Let me know you. I want to walk with you and follow you all of my days. Thank you, Lord. We're going to move into a time of communion, and this is going to look just a little different than it does on a monthly basis here. Um, You know, the very first time Jesus and the disciples took communion, it it was done in a circle, not a row. As they gathered around the table. And normally we take it in rows here, and that's that's fine. That's great. But there's a power in coming together in in a community way and remembering what Jesus did for us. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to take a step, be a little brave. It might be a little awkward for some of you, but that's okay. Go with it. I want, we're going to turn around in our rows, and we're going to huddle up in groups of about five, ten max. And I want you to be sure you're, you're not just with your immediate family. Gather in some other believers in Jesus, whether you know them or not. Just say, hi, I'm whatever your name is. And then we're going to put up for you just some prayer prompts. First thing, I'd like one or two or three people in the group just to to pray a prayer of thanksgiving that Jesus willingly died for us. What we just read. Willingly. He gave it. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it away for us. And then somebody in the group can, can read this one scripture, and you can take the bread and the cup together in remembrance of what he did for us. And then here's a couple other things. Why doesn't at least a couple of you in the group, why don't you pray for someone in your life who you hope will be changed by the gospel? All of us have someone in our life who needs to know Jesus. Why don't you pray for them? And then maybe there is an an, an area of personal need or of healing or of restoration you need in your life, and it's a significant need you came in here with today. Take a chance to pray about that as a group. We're going to take five minutes to just take communion together and pray over a few of these things. And when you hear Winston launch back into the bridge of that, that song we just sang, that's your cue to kind of wrap up your communion moment and, uh, and make your way back. And then I'm going to close by reading that, the last few verses of the John chapter 19. So let's do it. Do it now. Let's turn around. Let's huddle up. Let's get in some groups, find some people, and let's celebrate what he's done.
John 19:38 through 42 says later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders with Pilate's permission he came and took the body away he was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier in John 3 had visited Jesus at night Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And let me leave you with this this week. We leave Jesus in this passage, in the tomb. We know that's not the end of the story. There's a famous sermon. I love, I love it. I used to listen to it. It's Friday. Sundays are coming, right? But here's what I want you to do this week as we celebrate today Palm Sunday and then go on to Passion Week and Good Friday. Would you be would you just this week hold this and contemplate it and be thoughtful about what Jesus did for you and just live this week in an attitude of thankfulness for salvation, for life, for relationship with him that he made the way for you. And next week we have four service times and we love seeing everybody. Thanks for helping us grow 11. Hope you're going to invite your family and your friends and your coworkers and bring them on out. Please pick up um, one of those uh, invite cards on your way out or a couple of them and invite somebody. We'd love to see that. Maybe the person you prayed for just a minute ago in your group. Maybe, maybe that's the person you need to invite. Otherwise, have a great week. God bless you. Don't miss next week. We look forward to it. We're going to finish the book of John in one of my favorite passages. God bless. Have a great week.